Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever wondered, did my neighbor's dog get out or did something else make these tracks? I'm Michelle Fulner, and today I'll be talking with Sara Tabatabai from FEA Nature Center in Sacramento. And we're going to get to so many coyote questions, like how similar are they to wolves? Is one going to eat me? How can I tell if coyotes are living in an area where I'm hiking? Do they subsist on seed bits and hairballs as their scat suggests? Did I see one downtown last week? What's a coyote's love life like? Can I have one as a pet? What is all this about coyotes and badgers being friends? And of course, how can you tell a coyote's tracks from a dog's? Before we get to that, can I ask you to do something really quick? Okay, open up your podcast app, only if you're not driving, of course, and check to make sure you're subscribed to Golden State Naturalist. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you're already subscribed, you'll see a little check mark in the top right corner. If you see that, you're good, you're already subscribed, and you don't need to do anything else. If you aren't subscribed, you'll see a little plus sign. Hit that and you'll see it turn into a check mark and you won't miss an episode. Okay, next, if you're feeling like spreading sunshine and joy with your every movement and making California native flowers bloom out of your every footstep, at least in my mind, scroll down and tap on the stars to rate the podcast. You can also come back later and leave a review if you want to be one of my favorite people ever. And if you want even more Golden State Naturalist, you can become a patron for just $4 a month. With that membership, you can get audio and video extras from my interviews in the fields, behind the scenes information about how the podcast is made and what's coming up next, and more. Just the other night, I posted a video of myself in my pajamas working on this episode after my kids went to bed. Patreon helps me pay for things like the necessary tech to make a podcast and transportation costs for getting to and from interviews, which are now happening all across the state. Thank you to everyone who became a patron and helped me meet my goal last month. My first Patreon goal was $100 a month. You all are amazing. The next goal is to cover the cost of making the podcast, which averages out to about $250 a month. So if you want to help me reach that goal and also access all of those cool extras, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can find me on social media at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. The other thing you can do that helps so much is to share this podcast with a friend who loves nature. It could be someone who loves gardening, who loves going for walks outdoors, who just loves to be outside, or is just really into observing things, or maybe just someone who lives in California, or maybe someone who's planning a trip to California. Sharing it with a buddy or two makes a huge difference as I'm an independent podcaster. I make all of this totally on my own with basically no budget. So it helps a ton. Think of one or two people you think would love this and send it their way. But now let's get to the episode because Sara is going to hit you with so many coyote facts. She got her bachelor's degree in environmental studies from UCLA and her master's degree in environmental conservation education from NYU. So she knows her stuff and is also great at telling you about the stuff she knows. She's been working at FEA Nature Center for almost five years and canids, including wolves and coyotes, have been her favorite animals for much longer. So without further ado, let's hear from Sara Tabatabai all about coyotes on Golden State Naturalist. Can you pronounce your last name for me? Uh, Sara Tabatabai. 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 Nice! Tabatabai, yes. Okay. Rather than like an I sound at the end, it ends with an E sound. Oh, yeah. Tabatabai. So Sarah and I had gotten to the middle of the nature study area and we had started our conversation. I thought I was recording, but I wasn't. And then I ended up being so grateful that I wasn't recording because I had been saying her name wrong. So thankfully, she very gently corrected me and we started over. We meandered down a little path. It's actually a little bit overcast today, which surprised me a lot. It is June 2nd, and I kind of expected it to be blazing today. So I'm very grateful for the little bit of cloud cover we have. Absolutely. We walked down here by the pond. I don't know if you'll be able to pick up the little running water sound, but it's very soothing. And I was just asking, Sara, when you're new to an area, what do you look for to be able to tell if there are coyotes there? So generally, the first thing you probably will look for is their scat. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, coyotes 
coyotes are extremely like elusive, sort of secretive animals. Mm -hmm. Normally they will avoid humans. Not to say that they're a little bit habituated to people. They might try to approach. There is kind of a low likelihood of you actually being attacked by a coyote because mm -hmm. again, they're usually shy to them. We're more of the potential predators. So usually you may not see them, but you know, every so once in a while, especially when you're walking through these trails or any kind of wild space that doesn't have a lot of human visitors mm -hmm. for there to be a coyote kind of trotting around across a meadow or a forest or something like that. But when you're not seeing them, definitely a scat. Mm -hmm. um, they'll leave behind things usually right like in the middle of a trail or uh -huh. like in a crossroad yeah. because they are basically saying, this is my spot, this is my territory, you know, back off. There have been situations here at the nature center on the trails where right on a fork of a trail, there was coyote scat. You can generally tell that it's, it's the coyote because if you've ever seen any kind of dog waste, or dog scat for those who have a dog or just take care of a dog or anything like that it has that sort of tube mm -hmm. i always like to say this in a very like california boy way a tubular shape <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's a tubular shape and it tapers off or towards the end so it kind of gets like a little bigger and then right where it was basically exiting the behind is where it kind of tapers off into yeah. like a little stringy look mm -hmm. and so the difference though between a dog scat like domesticated versus wild canines is that it's going to look a lot differently in terms of texture mm -hmm. um, oftentimes when we feed our dogs it's kibble or maybe we like home cooked a little something for them but to some degree it's been processed mm -hmm. and so when they eat it it's something that's more easily digestible and so it'll come out a lot smoother maybe not as bumpier or things like that because their stomachs are able to digest it a lot easier. Things in the wild, not always easily digestible. So this conversation was super helpful to me because when I was a kid, I grew up in the hills of Napa Valley. And one of the places that I hiked around a lot was kind of up above Lake Berryessa. And when I would see coyote scat as a kid, it was full of these little red berries. And I thought that was just what coyote scat looked like. That was how I identified it. Now I'm pretty sure that was either manzanita berries or toyon berries or maybe both. I'm not sure, but that was the food available to coyotes in that area, which was a mixed chaparral ecosystem as opposed to the riparian or river adjacent ecosystem in many parts of Sacramento. Here, what I've noticed with coyote scat, it looks more just furry. So for a long time, I wasn't sure if it was coyote scat that I was looking at because it wasn't what I was used to. But Sara pointing out that one of the defining factors really is just that it looks super unprocessed was really helpful. Depending on where you live or even just what time of year it is, it will probably look different. But look for these traits that she's talking about, including that unprocessed quality, but she'll also get a little bit more into the size and shape in just a minute. Same thing can happen with humans too. Like certain things are not always digestible, mm -hmm. like corn. <laughs> Ever go to the restroom and you look at your own scat after a good cob of corn and you notice it's not always <laughs> fully digestible. And you're kind of looking at that when you're looking for any kind of canine scat. So for coyote, it could be like between three to five inches in length, uh -huh. usually like three fourths to a, an inch and a half in like diameter. So mm -hmm. like width in a way. And so that's kind of the general size you're looking for, but sometimes it can be broken up people step on it but there was this one point where i saw coyote scat and it was on so full circle of the story it was at a crossroads here in the trails good old coyote scat i knew it was coyote scat saw a little bit of fur in it maybe a little bit of uh seeds and berries i'm like okay cool I was with a school group so definitely coyote scat this is what we're looking for i see a little bit of fur or hair from probably an animal a little bit of seed from when they eat plants and then a couple days later it's still there it's a little bit more drier a few days later, I see a fresh pile oh, of scat, a yeah. little bit bigger on top of the other one. And I had this feeling like I'm going to do a hypothesis. I'm going to do an educated guess here and think that this is probably another coyote, yeah. probably bigger, mm -hmm. probably older and saying, no, I'm going to no. stake my claim here. Because yeah. what's funny is, and I just recently told a school group this recently, is that there's a lot of information within scat mm -hmm. in terms of scent. And this is why dogs, and you know cats do, oftentimes will greet each other, sniffing each other's behinds. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of you know people are like, oh my gosh, why do they do that? That's so silly. That's so gross. But they get a lot of information doing mm -hmm. that. They get basically age, um, basically sex. Is this person, or not person, is this animal <laughs> at a reproductive mm -hmm. stage or age? And kind of like general, when they say size and age, like, you know, what is this coyote? Who is this coyote? Right. So they'll use basically the scat as well to be like, all right. So my idea of this was maybe this other coyote, maybe older, maybe bigger, 
was thinking, hmm, small muscat, it's a younger coyote. I, I can probably stake my claim here and right. probably win the fight. Yeah. Now, that's just an educated guess. It could be the same coyote and it was older and goes, nah, I'm just making sure y'all know this is my spot. Doubling down. Yeah, I'm, yeah doubling so, down. So I have a question though, because I think of like my dog yeah. going and peeing on everything, right? Yeah. Like, do they mark their territory with urine too? I'm, or is it just the scat? It's gonna be both. Okay, I got really curious and I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on this. So I found a website called coyoteyips.com. And this is put together by Janet Kessler, who studies and photographs and researches coyotes, particularly in urban environments, but also in general. On her website, she's got a post from January of 2013 that says, urinating leaves all sorts of scents and messages which other coyotes or even other animals can pick up. The urine, as we've seen from human dope testing, contains traces of all sorts of hormones and pheromones excreted by the individual animal. These hormones and pheromones can indicate gender, age, stature, and maybe even mating availability. Urine is used by animals for marking their territorial boundaries, but also for leaving other messages about their status. And then she goes into another interesting behavior. She says, scraping or kicking the same spot they urinated on is a common behavior of dominant individuals. The act of scraping or kicking often signals leading status. It too is a messaging behavior. Paws apparently also secrete scents. Scraping, besides leaving traces of scent from paws, also helps spread the scent of urine. And she's saying she's wondering if this scraping or kicking of the urine also allows them to carry the urine smell now on their paws for with them as they walk. So coyotes have all kinds of ways of marking their territory and communicating with each other when they're not actually physically around each other, which is super cool. That tends to have, I think, a lingering physical form as well and probably a little power. bit more, yeah, a little more staying <laughs> power. I feel like urine probably the stench might evaporate a lot yeah. faster but of course we may not smell it as humans and they still can right but um I, i'm gonna assume that like scat has a longer lasting effect both visually and scent wise right you know but, you got yeah. both use both yeah you've got sure. both use both exactly <laughs> yeah yeah and I was also going to ask, I don't know if we'll see any because obviously yeah. people walk on these trails, mm -hmm. but what about their tracks? Yes. So there are very uncommon circumstances where I will see a coyote track. Oftentimes on our particular trails, it tends to be pretty dry and sandy, mm -hmm. it's dusty. like dusty. Mm -hmm. So they do get kicked up pretty often. Um, usually the best time to look for tracks is after a rainfall or a little bit near the river or the, near our ponds where the dirt or the dust kind of got a little bit more mushy. But when you do see a coyote track, it's pretty cool. So as we know about dogs, they're not like felines. They can't retract claws. Mm -hmm. So their claws are always out. Mm -hmm. When it comes to coyotes, their tracks tend to usually have like two very distinct claw points in the middle of the toes. Mm -hmm. Not so much on the fourth outer ones. Sometimes, yes, if it's very deep oh, press. Okay, yeah. Whereas the, you know, domestic dogs and like, like wolves and things like that as well, you'll also see like all four oh. points of the claws. Another thing is those claws are going to be deeper, sharper, oh. more pointed. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to domesticated dogs, people tend to like clip or file just to make sure they're not scratching up your Or they've been walking on pavement. Or they've been walking on pavement. Down, exactly. Sure. So just normal wear and tear. Whereas mm -hmm. coyotes, they need those sharp, sharp claws mm -hmm. for like hunting and digging and things like that. So you'll see a more pointed, sharp claw marks to their little paw prints. Plus a little bit on the smaller side. Can't remember the exact like size of them in terms of dimension and length and things like that. But you know, you're basically looking for like, okay, that looks like a dog print, but they're also a little bit more on the narrow side. Yeah. They have a little bit more of a narrow okay. paw. Yeah. So pretty interesting. So if you see like a very big, fat, padded dog-like foot, you're probably looking either at a domesticated dog or possibly a wolf, depending on what area you're in. But sure. here, if you see something that looks very big wolf dog-like, it's probably someone who walked their dog here. Just a quick side note here that FEA Nature Center and also many nature areas do not allow dogs on the trail. Now, of course, it's okay for ADA service dogs to come onto trails, but if you're going to be planning a trip to a national park, you want to be aware because some places actually require you to get a permit even for your service dog. Now, the reason for this is that having dogs on trails really disrupts wildlife, but also it can be unsafe for the dog and the person because a lot of animals will see a dog as either a threat or as a prey item. Also, dogs can walk in things like tall grass that have ticks or poison oak or things like that that you really don't want getting spread around. And all of those potential dangers 
go not just for national parks, but also for places like Effie and a lot of trails. So if you need to bring your service dog on a trail, do a little bit of research, find out what the rules are for the area where you're going and if you need to get a permit or not before you go. If you're just bringing a pet, make sure you're aware of the rules of the place that you're going and leave your dog at home or just bring your dog to an area where you know it's okay to bring dogs. I want to go like on a little adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go tromping around. Obviously, we have to stay on the trail. <laughs> yes. But let's see if we can find any spots that are maybe not super worn by humans. Mm-hmm. If we can see any any tracks yeah. or any scat that we can take a closer look at. Yeah, we can right. definitely just kind of wing it and see what's around. Okay, so we were walking along the trail and right next to the trail, we found some scat. And you think it's coyote scat? Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain it's probably coyote scat. Just because, one, we don't have a huge canine. Well, a canine here like the wolf. Our biggest one here is that medium-sized coyote. And at first we're like, oh, man, is it dog? But then we realize, hey, it's not fully digested. There's, not, um, there's still some organic material in there that just can't be digested, like the fur, maybe the skin of some seeds or some berries or mm-hmm. things like that. Because we do have some olive trees here that probably got transplanted over by oh. like birds and other animals yeah. from like the, the ranching days and it just yeah. it transfers over. And so as I was digging with nature's greatest tool, the stick, we see there's like a lot of stringy fur. It looks a little bit mm-hmm. fuzzy when I broke it open. So they'll just eat like a little rodent or something whole basically, kind of like they'll chop it down an yeah. owl like, and, just, and just gobble it. Yeah, they'll basically then, gobble it. They'll still do their chewing and ripping sure. and tearing and things like that, but they'll definitely, you know, um, um, have those really gnarly teeth to tear through thick fresh flesh but as omnivores like hey you and me if we choose to eat meat is that they they have teeth that are also adapted for eating you know fruits and berries and other sort of plant material uh-huh. and also i recently learned insects too apparently oh. they like to eat some grasshoppers too if they can't oh, get cool. their their mouths on anything bigger or more you know more sustenance or something yeah. like that so okay i'm getting a stick too yeah I'm, oh this is a bad Here, stick a, oh thanks great stick, stick. <laughs> make sure i take it from the correct end <laughs> <laughs> and then this looks to me, what is that? That's what I was trying to it figure out It looks like almost too. part of a, sorry, like a part of a pine cone or yeah, something, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of does. That's what I was trying to figure out too. Just in case there was any doubt at this point, yes, we are poking coyote poop with sticks, which is a lot more fun than it might sound like. Do they eat like, would they, would they eat like pine nuts and stuff? I mean, if, if it's if there, if it's available, yeah, they're pretty opportunistic. Mm-hmm. If there is an opportunity to eat a something and there really isn't anything else easier to grab, yeah, they'll definitely um, eat what they can get. So There's another one. Yeah. There's yeah. a few of them in there. It's like, I'm really curious about this too. It's like, it's so hard. Yeah. It's eh. like breaking your stick. I know, my poor stick. What is that? Oh no, a piece of plastic. Oh, that's Oh yeah, that will happen too. Again, with the opportunistic, you know, if there's like, Like, if someone left like a candy bar and it still has something in it, Mm -hmm. or maybe just like remnants of something in it, and they're like, I'm gonna lick this and chew on it. This is why we leave no trace. Yes, please. Uh, We don't want them eating trash. I almost wanna say it's like a hard skin of, uh, the best thing I can think of is like a fruit. Because sometimes, you know, fruit like grapes or something like that has skin that's not Mm -hmm. really easily digestible. Yeah. Can come out like that and you know after yeah, a like lot of baking gets, in the sun it gets pretty hard sure it kind of curls yeah. over on itself too is that like i said like kind of looking as close as i as i can it almost looks like the skin of something because it doesn't quite look like a pine cone something or other or like a nutshell right plus so. it's hard to imagine at this time of year them getting anything out of a pine cone right yeah exactly so, like the squirrels would have gotten it already mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. why would they even bother with it but it is the exact color and shape of, it like, is the outside part of a pine, right. pine cone Okay, I know that probably all sounded really gross, but honestly, looking through the scat was super interesting. I felt like a nature detective. Next time, I would love to do this again, but bring a magnifying glass to get a closer look. You learn so much about an animal and its environment by looking at what it eats. When we were done looking at the scat, Sara and I looked around to see if there were any tracks nearby. The ground, though, was fairly dusty and had quite a few leaves laying around on it, so we didn't see any. And we decided to keep walking to see if we could find any other traces of coyotes. We walked down to the river and checked the muddy banks, but we only found deer tracks there. We think we found some gray fox scat along one of the trails, which was super exciting, and a couple of other coyote scats along the way. Just as we were heading back to the pond to find a comfortable bench in the shade for our interview, we saw something move in the tall grass. Like just about the same size as jackrabbits. We stopped to get a better look. Long skinny tail tall pointed ears and we saw it moving away from us 
Do you have any guesses about what it was yet? It was a coyote pup. It was one of the cutest things I've ever seen. We clearly spooked it and it trotted off to hide, which it did very well because we tried to find it again by following trails that went closer and we could not see it. Eventually, we headed back to the bench to get settled in for our interview, which you're going to want to hear because at one point we got serenaded by a whole family of coyotes who were apparently right behind us the whole time we were talking. We'll get to the full interview and the coyote chorus right after a short break. And now, on to the full interview. How did you originally get interested in nature? So, the funny thing is, I've always been within nature since I even knew what nature was. Uh-huh. It was kind of those things where we'd, my family and I would go to places like Sequoia National oh, Park. Cool. Uh, we'd go to like different kinds of just nature spaces and just even just simple parks and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And we had a blast, just me exploring nature. And, you know, I love exploring animals. And as a young kid, I was like, oh my God, look at this frog, look at this, mm-hmm. this lizard. And I feel like even at a young age, I knew, you know, don't take them from the wild. Like, just be careful and gentle and put them back. Although one of my very earliest memories, sadly, was I loved a frog too much. Mm, yeah. I squeezed it too hard. I gave it too oh, much love. And I was yeah. like, two. Yeah, I was totally. a baby. And this is a story of like I was told by my parents that uh-huh. my mom was like, yeah, you loved a frog too much and you just brought it dead in the house oh, no. sobbing. Oh. Because you're like, what did you, what have I done? And I'm like, no wonder I feel so scared picking up frogs and toes. Even at work, yeah. I'm like, it's okay. Just be gentle. And I'm like, oh, it's trauma. <laughs> but like, obviously, I've come over that a lot. But it's just like my earliest memory was like I, I was so devastated by my own actions. And I was like, I got to be more yeah. careful. I oh, think that's this, really yeah, cute. Yeah, so it was like a sad learning experience. But yeah, we, we explored a lot. And then I didn't really think of nature being something you could do a career in or anything mm-hmm. like that. I was like, hey, nature is nature. You just love it, respect it, take mm-hmm. care of it the best you can. And I actually went to community college, just sort of no idea what major I wanted to do and just having happenstance. Took a course that was called environmental science. And I was like, huh, huh. what's that all about? And then I was like, whoa, these are all the things that I, I really enjoy and all the things I think I'm learning about climate change, globalization, all these different kind of components. This kind of thing is exactly why I ride for community college. It made such a big difference in my life. And in fact, my husband and I at different times both had the same teacher at Napa Valley College, and we loved her so much. And she made such a big difference in our lives that we named our firstborn daughter after her. No joke. So it's cool to see what a big impact it had on Sara's life too. And I'm like, I want to do something related to nature and like teaching these sorts of things, learning more about them and spreading awareness, Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of cultivate an understanding with nature and cultivate positive relationship with nature so that people will take care of something they built a relationship with. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it's hard to bridge a gap of, oh, what's nature? I just use it and I don't really need to care about it. But when you build and foster a relationship, suddenly you want to take care of it, not because Mm -hmm. you feel obligated to take care of it or you're supposed to take care of it, but you want to. So it's kind of a long history of like weaving in and out of just like, I love nature, I love animals, and then going, oh, let's apply that passion Mm -hmm. towards something a little bit more positive. So that's how I'm here today. I love that. So I've been to FEA a lot of times. It's where I earn my California naturalist certification. I bring my kids there pretty regularly on the weekends. And it's just a good place to get into nature without having to go too far from the middle of Sacramento. I've also seen and heard coyotes there a number of times, which got me wondering about how many might live there. Sara said she wasn't sure, but she estimated that if you include the new pups, it could be close to 20 individuals. It seems like um, a pretty, like it would support a lot of coyotes here. Yes, absolutely. And the one thing to, to consider is that you can get a lot of pups and a lot of times, especially the urban coyotes, they won't always reach adulthood. They mm-hmm. can probably live to be between 10, 15 years, but like majority of them may not live up till year three. Oh, and really? even with the pups, mm-hmm. they probably won't live until their first year sometimes. Yeah. That's why they tend to have a pretty large litter depending on location, food supply, how many coyotes are already here, so mm-hmm. what's the current population. But on average, they can have a litter of about four to seven pups. Okay, this thing about the different litter sizes is fascinating. Kate Marionchild writes about this in Secrets of the Oak Woodlands, which I think I've recommended in like three different episodes by now, so definitely go purchase that book if you don't have it yet. Anyway, to summarize this section of her chapter on coyotes, the US government basically went on a killing campaign to get rid of as many coyotes as possible in order to protect livestock. They throw an insane amount of money at this and also kill tens of thousands of coyotes every year, and to quote Marion Child, astonishingly, 
After more than a hundred years of this concentrated attack, coyotes are more numerous than ever and have even expanded their range. She then explains that the reason for this is the fact that coyotes can actually have more pups if there's more food available. This means that if one coyote from a pack is killed and there's temporarily more food for those who remain, the new mothers will then actually have bigger litters and the pups will have a better chance of survival, which brings the total number of coyotes up rather than down after one is killed. Marion Child says ranchers have been more successful when they've redoubled their efforts to protect their livestock with things like improved fences, guard dogs, etc., rather than killing more coyotes. Okay, but back to what happens after baby coyotes are born. And of course, not all of them are going to survive because that's just how nature works. Even if, even with the father and mother coyote, they're actually taking care of them and, and watching them. And so both them. parents take care mm -hmm. of them? It is a family unit. They will take care of their young. It's a mm -hmm. collaboration. They work together to take care of the family. And so a family unit could just be like the mom and the dad. It could be like the previous year's offspring that are not quite there at the reproductive mm -hmm. age. And then the newest offspring. Um, and eventually like when these older cubs reach that reproductive age and it's time for them to sort of start their own family, they might, you know, break away from the family pack, from their own family pack, or maybe another one joins them and the family mm -hmm. pack gets a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. It's kind of this kind of interesting society within the coyotes where, you know, you could have your solitary ones, you can have a small family pack, you can have a large family pack of multiple families or mm -hmm. just one family or some that just like, I don't want to be in this family, I'm breaking away. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's almost like in a way humans, how we kind of like deviate or come together. Coyotes almost have a similar- You move out and go to college. Yeah, exactly. And then you realize like, you can't afford a place yeah. and you can I'm move back, back home. In. Yeah, some, some family <laughs> packs will actually accept a solitary coyote sometimes. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I almost imagine like, you know, a family pack is like, has a young daughter reached a re reproductive age and a male solitary coyote is like, hello? So, you know, it might happen, you know, yeah, sometimes families to get together. So. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and what is reproductive age for a coyote? Oh man, that's a good question. I want to say three. You make okay. Me want, you make me want to Google this now. I did Google it. And while coyotes are actually sexually mature by about one year old, often they don't mate until they're two. When you're out here walking around, what time of day are you most likely to see the coyotes? Usually when I've seen coyotes, it was early, early mornings or mm -hmm. later in the evenings. Okay. Usually in like the midday, it's either a little too hot or a little bit too many human foot traffic. So again, they're going to kind of avoid the area. Just right now, out. today, we're here, it was like, what, almost close to three o'clock? Yeah. And we saw a baby coyote. Well, we could speculate because it's overcast, it's a little bit warm, a lot mm -hmm. of humans are probably staying home today, and so they're feeling a little bit more adventurous, a little bit more comfortable. Yes, there was no one around when yeah. we walked up. There was just us. Dude. It was that just was us, it. yeah. So you can you can find coyotes actually almost any time of the day. It just depends on people. Here you can probably see them a little bit more on the nocturnal side, mm -hmm. but also a little diurnal depending on, again, humans. When it comes to like in the actual cityscape or the urban environment, you're gonna see coyotes mostly active in the nighttime. Yeah. Yeah. when there's not a lot of people. Mm -hmm. A lot of my coyote sightings were actually around my own neighborhood or oh, like downtown Sacramento. Yeah, I've and seen like pictures trotting of them. Through the, trotting through the night and people are like, oh my God, is that a dog? I'm like, no, that's coyote. Like I'm clapping my hands to haze them to make sure that they're not getting used to being around people yeah. and that people know that's not a stray dog. Leave it alone. Don't mm -hmm. even try to feed it. I was curious about which California cities have coyotes and I saw that they are in Los Angeles, San Diego, San Jose, San Francisco, Sacramento, and then I stopped Googling it because I think they're just in all the cities. So Right, and, and why is it that coyotes, like this is something that one of my listeners asked actually, yeah. was wondering like, why is it that coyotes can adapt to urban environments, but say like foxes or like other animals that maybe eat similar things, they mm. don't adapt to urban environments. What is it with coyotes? I can tell for like wolves, for example, why they're not that great for urban setting. They're a lot larger. Mm -hmm. So finding places to live and hunt can be a little bit trickier. Plus their meals are gonna be a lot bigger. They're not gonna be like rodents and small mammals mm -hmm. like rabbits. Foxes, I'm not quite sure. I think they would have a higher chance than let's say wolves mm -hmm. to be able to adapt an urban environment. Maybe this is just speculation and kind of like an educated guess that maybe foxes don't do too well in the urban setting is maybe because they're smaller. Hmm. There's probably higher likelihood of being eaten 
by other possible yeah. urban predators uh -huh. or traffic. They can get hit by cars more mm -hmm. easily than a coyote. They, you know, you can't see a small fox or a small skunk or an opossum, mm -hmm. but you might be able to see like a medium-sized dog. But I'm sure they're probably around and we just don't see them as much as the coyotes because um, they are smaller and they tend to be Yeah, maybe they're just better at hiding. Maybe they're better at hiding. <laughs> coyotes are just like, oh my God, this is run across. But in terms of coyotes, it's, it's basically based on food. You know, their primary diet is, you know, rodents, small mammals, fruits, berries, unfortunately trash. So they, there's abundance of food around our neighborhood because a lot of times, and that's another reason why they adapted so well at nighttime hunting for the urban setting is because mice and rats and other rodents like that are actually primarily nocturnal. Mm -hmm. We don't see a lot of rats and mice in the daytime. They're right. usually found more in the darkness where it's a little bit more quieter. They can maybe more peacefully find food mm -hmm. without being disturbed. But someone else is going to have to be awake to kind of eat those animals, including owls. Yeah. So I, that's why I can see why coyotes are really good in the urban setting because there's an abundance of food. Yeah, it's exactly right for them. And, yeah. and not only are they eating the rats, but they can eat whatever the rats were eating too. Right. right? Like they're like, oh, cool. I'll take both. Yeah, I'll take both. <laughs> like, oh, grand. you're eating that plant and that, or that cheese? I'll eat the cheese and I'll eat you. You <laughs> like this apricot tree? Cool. I like this Done. apricot tree. <laughs> yeah, and with being a smaller size animal, there's a little bit more easier for them to hide in just bushes, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a park. But like they're native here, right? They're, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and what is their their historic range where would they have been found they would definitely be found a lot within the california northern american area mm -hmm. i mean even like with some research studies was like they weren't really in the european area side note because there are no coyotes in europe or at least there weren't historically europeans when they came over actually borrowed the nahuatl word for coyote which i cannot pronounce so i am going to play the pronunciation for you from wikipedia coyote Want to hear it again? Coyote. The Latin name for coyote is Canis latrans or latrans. I'm not sure how to say it, but it literally means barking dog. We're going to get to the barking dog part in just a minute. Right. You know, they were just basically native here in this area. Mm -hmm. So, North I mean, America. they, yeah, North American area, but they do have a widespread. And of course, animals end up traveling through accidental, you know, boat shipment. That's actually yeah. how we got things like rats and other animals Yay. on this side <laughs> is some rats got on a boat and then whoop, there they go. We um, have rats. I don't think like the kind of rats that we think about now, like certain species of rats, okay, okay, like okay. in New York City, mm -hmm. those are like European ancestry. The ants. rats that are like the size of a chihuahua. God, those freaking <laughs> subway rats. I, being in New York City, I've seen those guys. Oh, I'm like, that yeah. is not our rat, I swear. They're terrifying. No, those ones in particular are not our rats. So we're, we do have our own native species, but those, uh -huh. yeah, the size of like oh. a chihuahua, you're like, what? What is that monstrous thing? Beast. Like that, that was definitely a, oops, European shipment, accidental. Animals will move either by people on purpose or by accident. I'm not sure if there's any coyotes anywhere else. Part of me wants to say maybe uh -huh. somehow they might've gotten to another continent, but they're mostly like native in this area. Yeah. Is there anywhere country. that you wouldn't find them like in California or in the United States or are they just, they just adapt to they're everywhere? kind of everywhere. If there's a place there's no coyotes, I don't know of it. Mm -hmm. I won't say like no or yes as a definitive answer just because I haven't made that kind of research. But in terms of the range, they can travel like 60 miles. They'll cross city or state borders. It doesn't matter to them. Like borders don't mean anything to them. Those are arbitrary things that mm -hmm. humans have created. And it's just a matter of, is there food over here? Is there possibly new territory for me to claim? Is there a lady coyote I was just really attracted to and I'm following her? At this point, I called time out because of the airplane that was flying over us. It was a prop plane and it was pretty low, so it was really loud. And after the plane had been around for a minute, the coyotes got real aggravated by it. And they told us their opinions about it. Oh my gosh. So I have a speculation on that. I hopefully the listeners can hear this. The airplane is creating a sound that probably is not something that they like. So they're responding. <gasps> it's not something I like either. Should we howl at it? Sara says it isn't known why coyotes bark and howl and yowl at different loud things like sirens and airplanes. But based on my very brief personal experience with howling at the airplane, it really was pretty cathartic. Also, I will just appreciate Sara forever for being willing to howl at an airplane with me. After we recovered from just how cool it was to hear that coyote chorus right behind us, I was curious about how similar and different coyotes are from other 
canids. So I think the best way to describe it is that they'll share a lot more similarities than differences per se. They are just a medium-sized dog, a little bit smaller than the wolf, a little bit bigger than the fox. They like a, like a wolf could be like three to five feet long, including the tail and like mm -hmm. almost two feet tall. That's a lot. Like That's to the big. shoulder. And the coyote is like one half feet tall okay. to the shoulder. And they can have a little bit shorter in length, including the tail. And then the fox is like a little one foot tall, maybe a little oh less God, than that. Cute. So in terms of size, there's that difference in paw shape a little bit. But if you kind of were really looking at like the facial structure of let's say a wolf and a coyote is coyotes actually have longer pointed ears. Oh. Wolves are a little bit more shorter, a little bit more on the rounder side oh. a little bit. And the coyote's muzzle is very long, it's narrow, a little mm -hmm. bit more pointed. And again, the wolf is a little bit more rounded, a little bit more stout. So that's like one quick way to tell the difference between the two. And coyotes also have more like goldenish eyes. Oh. Whereas you can see wolves have more like, you know, brown. I think sometimes wolves have blue eyes as well, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Also love wolves. They're my favorite animals. That's oh. It, it started with wolves. And then I was like, we don't have wolves here in the nature center. That's okay. I'll stick with coyotes. Yeah. So that's how coyote became my favorite animal They'll here. They'll become the so, mascot. Yeah. But that's color Coloration patterns will also play a factor of how they're kind of different. Mm -hmm. They don't really have a big range of coloration combos. It's kind of like that reddish brown feet, kind of a yellowish brownish tan body, like a white yellowish belly and neck. Mm -hmm. And then you can see wolves come in like different shades of blacks and browns and whites and yeah. grays and a little bit of red. Like you got the red wolf kind of thing too going on. They have a little bit more of intricate color variations and color combos, whereas coyotes are kind of generally within the same light colors. They don't have as vast of color differences. Yeah, so. so they're they're pretty easy to tell apart and yeah. And one of the things I thought of while you were talking about their ears being more pointed is yeah. Is I heard that as dogs get domesticated, their ears get rounder. Yeah, I've heard that too. And I'm kind of interested like how accurate that is. I, I can believe it because yeah. a lot of dogs with rounded ears or they're more floppy. Mm -hmm. But it also makes you wonder like in the wild though, we see the wolves have more of a rounded ear. They're Let's definitely not domesticated. Yeah, definitely not. But like, could, do you think it would be possible to domesticate a coyote? Oh, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, don't do it. But <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean. It would take some generations. It would take some, yeah, it would take some generations. But they might I have an easier time being domesticated because they're like a medium-sized dog. They might get a little mm -hmm. bit more trusting of people. So I think sometimes when we think of domestication of animals, we think of just like going and catching a wild animal and then sort of trying to tame that individual animal. But usually that's not the way that it works with domestication. The Smithsonian Magazine has an article on how dogs were domesticated originally from wolves. And there's a theory called survival of the friendliest. And it suggests, according to the Smithsonian, that wolves largely domesticated themselves under hunter-gatherer people. The article goes on to say that the physical changes that appeared in dogs over time, including spotchy coats, curly tails, and floppy ears, follow a pattern known as self-domestication. It's what happens when the friendliest animals of a species somehow gain an advantage. Friendliness somehow drives these physical changes, which can begin to appear as visible byproducts of this selection in only a few generations. So maybe they're coming closer to humans, the friendliest ones are getting the food scraps, and then the friendliest ones of their offspring get even a little bit closer to the humans and gain a bigger advantage from that, and so they end up domesticating themselves. There's a famous case of domesticated foxes in Russia, which the article also talks about. This experiment bred foxes who were comfortable getting close to humans, but researchers learned that these comfortable foxes were also good at picking up on human social cues. The selection of social foxes also had the unintended consequence of making them look increasingly adorable like dogs. I definitely recommend going and looking at some of these pictures of the domesticated foxes. They're super cute. But this didn't happen in just one generation. It took several. So when you think about domesticating coyotes, my guess as somebody who's not super educated on this is if it follows the same pattern as dogs and foxes, probably it wouldn't happen overnight and not with one individual. In fact, I read an article about a woman who was a dog trainer who found a coyote pup that had been left alone and her raising that and training it like she did with her dogs. And the pup never learned its name and it never really learned to live inside of a home. Another article I read said that often people, when they try to take in coyotes, the coyotes never become the good family member that they're hoping for and they end up chained in the backyard and they can't be re-released because they're too used to people and they might try to approach people in inappropriate ways. I'll let Sara get into some of the reasons it would be a bad idea to just try to 
to take in a wild coyote. But there's still a wild animal that can have an unpredictable behavior. Mm -hmm. That's why they often say like fed coyote is a dead coyote. You mm -hmm. feed a coyote, it starts to come to learn, I don't really need to hunt. Let me just go find some people and mm -hmm. they're going to give me food. But there comes expectations from that as well. They yeah. don't really have the cognitive process of thinking, oh, this all humans were going to give me food. So they might get a little aggressive. Mm -hmm. And that's where some human texts might occur is they're expecting food, you're not giving it to them. They're like, how dare you? What's going mm -hmm. on? Like this was a relationship I thought I had with people and they might get a little aggressive. It's the same thing that can happen with geese and ducks and things like that as mm -hmm. well as when you feed these animals, they get reliant, defendant, they get expectant. And then it's suddenly they're aggressive with each other because they're competing for those little breadcrumbs or they're aggressive with the person who they think they should be getting food from or they follow you. And also mm -hmm. just environmental wise, it can be kind of gross because then you got these geese and these ducks all sitting in a place where normally they need to move. And so right. now all of a sudden you get all this like bird waste that oh. just really bad for water quality. Yeah. So not completely the same with coyotes, but you know, you can definitely attract coyotes in the area a lot more and things like that. But the thing is that coyotes, like I said, could get aggressive with you. And if they're habituated and approaching humans, that poses a risk to people. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the solution to that, unfortunately, is if a domesticated or habituated coyote is found kind of approaching humans or maybe like starting to attack or look aggressive, the response is get the coyote put him down. Mm -hmm. There is no alternative, unfortunately. There is no like reversal of that learned behavior. Yeah. And sometimes that can be hard because oftentimes you see a coyote trotting about and it really does just look like a straight, like a stray dog or someone's dog got loose. Yeah. I have many times where I was like, oh my God, someone's dog is that. That's not a dog. That's coyote. It's one of those things like just know your coyote and you should be able to tell like, oh no, that's a wild wow, coyote. Give it space. And there are some situations where if it does seem to be a little comfortable laying in the street or the sidewalk or maybe approaching you, hazing um, mm -hmm. is like the best way to do it which is basically just make loud noises clap your hands okay. yell be really scary it's i would a, not like throw any projectiles at sure. them i mean if you had a hose in your neighborhood you might spray them a little bit mm -hmm. that's fine it's harmless but like any kind of possible harmful projectiles obviously avoid just making yourself scary is enough for them to instill that humans scary avoid mm -hmm. and then you're keeping that coyote safe and so that's training them to stay away from humans is it also yeah. protecting you like what are the yeah. odds of you getting attacked by a coyote honestly it's very 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 low mm -hmm. the only time that you would probably have a higher likelihood of being attacked by a coyote is if you have a small child or a small pet or i mean just any pet because again you know there's that potential of oh possible territory threat or possible food source mm -hmm. or they're not registering that you know small human child is not food they might just go oh potential food i don't mm -hmm. know let me go check it out it's all about just being aware obviously don't take your small child unattended in the dead of night or the evening <laughs> right. and like be like all right kids let's go for hang. it go hang out in the front yard at like 8 p.m i don't know but even then it's a very low likelihood mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like an off chance yeah and you know a lot of times people think that oh you know coyotes eat your you know your small pets and your cats which is it's true it can happen mm -hmm. but it's that likelihood is also relatively low because they tend to go for rats and and mice and things mm -hmm. like that so even smaller usually. even smaller or rats Habits, but if your cat is like really just sitting around or your dog sitting around and not really doing much to defend themselves and it is an easy catch, obviously they're going to go with the easier catch. So right. that's why you got to be mindful and keep your pets inside, especially at nighttime. Uh -huh. Especially um, your and don't cats. Let them. Yeah, especially the cats for more than just to protect them, but also mm -hmm. somber population as well. Real quick side note is the reason why cats are so problematic when let outside is that they're not actually native to this area. And so they do things in the ecosystem that the ecosystem does not have a way of balancing out. They've actually contributed to the extinction of 63 species of birds, mammals, and reptiles in the wild and continue to adversely impact a variety of other species. So that's abcbirds.org. I know we love our cats. I've got a cat. I love her. She's been my buddy for like 13 years, but just keep your cats inside. That's the best thing you can do. Okay, we went from animals that are not our pets to animals that are our pets, and now let's go back to animals that are not our pets. Let's hear more about the life cycle of coyotes. The whole life cycle is that they will actually, you know, start mating around like late January to March. Mm -hmm basically getting ready for the spring pups, which is what we're seeing right now yeah, in like in this in the spring, them. early summer. You usually get late spring, early summer pups. Uh -huh. But they got a pretty quick gestation period, like 60, 63 days. So fairly quick. A lot of human pregnant people are like, I wish that was soon for me too. Like yeah, we're no holding kidding. this baby for a long time. And they're like, nah, I'm holding like four to seven. I need to get them out quick. 
So I guess there's a, there's a trade-off there. And I'll hang out with the family for quite a few years. I would say like the daughters will hang out with the family pack for a good chunk of their life unless mm. they kind of break away and find an, a mate or something like that. And they're quite monogamous. They'll, uh, they'll tend to mate for several years, possibly for their entire life or until one of the pair dies. Um, oh and goodness. then it's like, okay, well, I mourn the death of my, my mate or my pair. And, you know, sometimes you got to move on, you know, keep their offspring in the, the generations coming. So, but they're fairly monogamous as opposed to many other animals that are like, you know what? I'm all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> every, every, every animal species is different, which is funny because yeah. it's almost like humans. You've got some humans that are polyamorous and some mm-hmm. that are monogamous or some that are kind of like in, in between. So it's, it's kind of interesting how like we humans are kind of like a combination of a different different kinds we of do animals. our own thing, we do our yeah, own thing. for sure humans defy categorization okay but what about other species and coyotes how picky are they about their mates okay i've heard that they would actually create hybrids with other species have you heard anything about Ooh, that like, i haven't heard or read anything about that so i wouldn't know what to say specifically but i wouldn't completely rule it out Mm -hmm. because in the wild there can be a number of hybrid hybridization happening because you know adaptations genetics that need to like carry on to the next generation you can also talk about things like you know climate change and things Mm -hmm. are changing maybe there's maybe things are maybe there's a lot of populations in certain areas and they have no choice but to mate with a possible other species science.org has a very brief article about this exact thing So apparently in the eastern United States, coyotes are hybridizing with wolves and domesticated dogs. So here's what the article says. These kai wolves, which can be twice the size of coyotes, are thought to number in the millions, zoologist Ronald Kays told The Economist. In some ways, they are a mix of wolf and coyote. For example, their howl starts deep and ends in coyote-like yips, but their flexible diet and nocturnal habits are unlike those of either wild ancestor. Such behaviors may help explain why kai wolves are thriving in urban areas even cities like New York and Boston. So coyotes are super adaptable on their own, and then also they've mixed with other animals that has made them even more adaptable, which is wild. But is anything threatening coyotes? Okay, they seem completely unstoppable to me because they can live anywhere, but like, are there threats to coyotes? What do we have to worry about? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the biggest threats to coyotes is probably humans, Mm. unfortunately, because from accidents of oh no like i fed this coyote not really realizing and then they had to be sure. called on and put down or i hit the coyote with my car by accident or a bike or something like that but then there's also purposeful hurt you know because a lot of times coyotes will venture into farmlands and they'll mm-hmm. go for like small livestock poultry animals like that and you know a lot of farmers are like oh my gosh i gotta protect my plot gotta protect mm-hmm. my animals and so rather than really trying to find some alternatives that might work to kind of keep them at bay or kind of discourage them from coming that just automatically will shoot them some of them will do it just the individuals that come threatening some of them will see a coyote and be like that's it no done you don't even get a chance as we talked about a few minutes ago that's probably not the most effective way to actually keep coyotes away do you know any like common myths about coyotes what do people think that's totally wrong or <sighs> So I feel like sometimes maybe people think coyotes are like super aggressive and they're super like, you know, mean. And again, that's probably a myth right there is that they think they're aggressive, they're mean, they're going to attack you. They're scary animals, but really they're just shy little animals. Mm -hmm. They're like, Mm -hmm. I just don't, I don't want to hang out with you. Humans are scary. So they're very shy, not like mean and aggressive or anything like that. They can be, but you're probably threatening them or scaring them or they're habituated or they're probably infected with rabies or some kind of illness that causes an abnormal behavior. Whereas normal wild behavior is none of those things. It's Uh just, I'm shy, you're scary. I'm going to avoid you very much like humans. When they see a scary thing, their instinct is, I'm, I'm going to avoid that. Right. Okay. So coyotes might not want to be friends with us, but you know who they are friends with? Badgers. According to a page by the Fish and Wildlife Service, coyotes and badgers are known to hunt together and can be even more successful hunting prairie dogs and ground squirrels when they work in tandem. Studies have shown that this unusual relationship is beneficial for both species. The coyote can chase down prey if it runs, and the badger can dig after it if it heads underground into its burrow systems. Each partner in this unlikely duo brings a skill the other one lacks. Together, they are both faster and better diggers than the burrowing rodents they hunt. Apparently the badger though will like ditch the coyote when it gets colder out and it can just dig up its prey. They're just kind of like buddies when it suits them. Okay, final question for Sarah. 
So after four and a half, almost five years, what about being here at FEA or about being around coyotes, maybe not even coyotes specifically, but just being in a natural environment like this just still amazes you, takes your breath away? Honestly, just everything. Even if it's a simple, you and me were walking and no matter how many times I could probably see it, I will always just go, oh, coyote. Yeah. Or like, oh my God, jackrabbit. I can see 50 deer and still I'm like, oh my gosh, deer. Yeah. Like, it's like, <laughs> You would think that it's the first time I've ever seen this animal in my entire life, but no, it's probably the hundredth time, but it's still exciting every single time because they're just, they're so fascinating. It's one of those things that you have a moment where it's like, it's just you and that deer, or you and that coyote, you and that poppy flower or that plant. It's you and nature. You get to yeah. like kind of detach yourself from the whole city or the town or your neighborhood, the, the darn airplanes <laughs> zooming around above your head and Maybe you get to leave some stress behind. Yeah. Just focus on what's around you. And that's what's really great about nature and what's really great about working here is that, yeah, I got office work. Yeah, I got desk work or I got like work on like, oh, camp policies and other things like mm-hmm. that. The nitty gritty, not so fun stuff. But then you get these chances where I get to come out here, get a little bit of a reprieve and be mm-hmm. like, this is nice. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm doing all the boring stuff because yeah. I get to be here and then teach a variety of different people, a variety of different ages of what we have here and what we can do to foster relationships that are positive with nature and instill this sort of stewardship in people. Like, I want to do better. I want to do more. Even if it's something as simple as I'm going to start recycling more or I'm going to, you know, reduce my water consumption in terms of like, obviously not drinking because we need it, but like maybe let's not have my faucet running when I'm brushing my teeth, Mm -hmm. you know, or maybe let's not take a shower that's an hour long and the water is running for the entire hour. Like maybe let's find ways Mm -hmm. that I can improve my life in small ways, but also helps improve nature. So like these kind of small things, because my jam is definitely talking about ecology, but in a sustainable aspect, like Mm -hmm. what can we do? That helps them because I want to show and express that hey we're in a relationship with nature right we're not this is not a oh I'm just gonna take 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 and never give back like no positive relationship ever works on that kind of system it's always That's... give and take it's always a collaboration it's always a two-way street of a relationship and it's kind of like trying to go back to the days where the indigenous people knew exactly what that was all about they knew Mm -hmm. i am taking something but i need to give something back to you so that you are growing you are thriving and therefore i can continue to grow and continue to thrive so it's like trying to teach that mentality back in the modern day human and so it's that's it's what being here is a constant reminder of Mm -hmm. that purpose and that joy and that passion that I have for that kind of thing so yeah it just it brings me peace and it kind of gives me that grounding of yeah I'm I'm exactly where I'm I'm meant to be I love that (laughs) I love that that's super cool well Sarah thank you so much of course thank you I took your whole afternoon I'm totally fine with that (laughs) so much coyote action Ah, yeah it was perfect awesome I had so much fun with Sarah running all around the riparian zone looking for coyote clues I highly recommend this activity with a buddy, with kids, or by yourself, although people might give you weirder looks if they see you poking poop with a stick by yourself. One last note is that if you're not familiar with it, you should definitely check out Effie Nature Center. Effie is spelled E-F-F-I-E, different word, Y-E-A-W. It's located in Carmichael inside of Ansel Hoffman Park. So if you're anywhere in the Sacramento area, it's pretty accessible to you. I think parking is like $5, but totally worth it because there are so many great easy trails that kids can do. The nature center has animal ambassadors, as well as some very cool taxidermy critters, including a coyote that is snarling. And there are so many great plants and animals to check out on the 100 acre preserve on the land there. While you're there, consider making a donation because these folks are seriously doing some solid work. Okay, the something interesting for my week is a little bit sad this time because yesterday was my last day at the school where I've been teaching for nine years. It's a school I love, but some changes in my childcare situation were going to make it really tough to keep driving across town. And as I drove away yesterday, I listened to Welcome to Your Life by Group Love at full volume and just ugly cried. And I'm just going to miss all my all my people, all my beautiful kids and my colleagues. Also, a reminder for everyone, and that is that I'm going to be making this podcast in seasons. This was episode eight out of 12 for season one. So just four more episodes until the season break. I've got all of the interviews recorded for season one, and y'all, they are so good. I cannot wait to share them with you. Okay, thanks so much for joining me and for sticking around to the very end of the episode. I'll see you all next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye!
The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find the link to that song as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes. See you next time.